Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We started looking at this uh, chapter last week. Uh, We wanted to spend three weeks looking at the prodigal son, but we needed one week of context. We needed one week to look at uh, how Jesus began this parable. Uh, He began the parable of the prodigal son with two other parables uh, to announce and to herald the meaning of this third parable. They go together. And last week we looked at the motivation for these three parables. It's clearly identified for us in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were angry and were frustrated at the fact that he was eating with tax collectors, with sinners, with wicked Jewish people, crooks uh, that were tax collectors that betrayed their own brethren, or Jews who were under the law, under the Torah, that despised the Torah, decided to live uh, outside of the boundaries of the law, sinners, even pagans, non-Jewish people. Jesus received them gladly. We looked at that word received with expectation and longing. He received them gladly. And he did not receive the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And because of that, he had to tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees why he received sinners with joy. And why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if they do not see their desperate need for a Savior, they won't be received. They don't need Jesus because they think they are righteous on their own. He told the parable of the lost sheep, and we saw the the nature of the lostness of that sheep. We saw the parable of the lost coin. Uh, We saw the the way that uh, the woman goes about looking for that coin with urgency, no matter what it takes, what it costs. We looked at the value that Jesus has placed on us to say, I want to chase you down and pursue you and love you, lavish you with my love. We looked at repentance. We looked at all of those things, and it leads us to where we are today with the parable of the prodigal son. Really a misnomer because verse 11, it says a man had two sons. So it's not just the prodigal. In fact, the main character of this story would really be the older brother. That's the whole point of this story is what the older brother does when the younger brother returns home. And we'll see that clearly in two more weeks. This is a crucial chapter. One of the best chapters in all of Scripture, J.C. Ryle calls it, uh, he says of it, there's probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men than Luke chapter 15. It's a familiar chapter. We've talked a lot about familiar parables. This is a very familiar parable. Um, Shakespeare, for instance, borrowed plot points and motifs from this parable of the prodigal son and adapted them in The Merchant of Venice and Henry IV. Um, There's allusions to this in a lot of other dramas. Uh, Arthur Sullivan used this in um, uh, an opera that was written. Um, The the exact words from this text were used and sung. Um, Many other operas were formed out of this. On the opposite side of the musical spectrum, Hank Williams recorded a song called The Prodigal Son that comes straight from the idea of this. There's paintings, Rembrandts, and Rubens that are all about different scenes in this. And Charles Dickens, who knew how to write a good story, um, called this parable the greatest short story that has ever been written. Um, It's familiar, 
But I pray that as we spend some time diving into the riches of this story, that the familiarity that we have with this account would just go away, that we'd be reading it for the first time, that we would hear it read as if we were hearing Jesus speak these words for the very first time. That we'd be undone seeing ourselves as the younger brother. That we'd be undone seeing the grace of the Father for his Son. That we'd see our own legalism in the older brother. It's my prayer over these next three weeks that we would just savor these verses and let God change our hearts. So let's read them together. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself to one of the citizens of that country And he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. Father, I pray that as we stare at the ruin of the younger brother. That we would not be so prideful as to think that we are above what he did think that we're beyond we're better than what he did god may this sermon may these words from scripture just be a mirror just like james talks about that we would see ourselves and that we would not become forgetful hearers but that we would see ourselves and be undone and run to jesus for grace God, I pray over the next three weeks that truly these three weeks together around this incredibly important parable would alter the direction of our church for all of eternity. That we would always be seeing ourselves as younger brothers and older brothers. That we would see the disdain that the older brother has for the younger brother and even for the father himself. And we would see that we do that so much more often than we think. God, I pray that we would be a church that would be able to plead with older brothers to savor the grace of God and that we would be a church that would welcome younger brothers. God, teach us this morning of the grace of Jesus found at the cross as we stare at our own sinful ruin. Teach us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. For our time this morning, we're just going to look at these few verses. Um, This parable, you could kind of split it up into four parts, three parts, even two parts. We're going to split it up into three parts. And as we look at this, just this morning for our outline, we're going to look at, number one, the shameful request of the son. Number two, the surprising response of the father. And number three, the sinful ruin of the son. So we'll go through those one by one as we come to them in our text Verses 11 and 12, number one, the shameful request of the son. This is verse 11 and 12, the shameful request. Jesus opens this parable by saying a man had two sons. Why do we focus on the one? Um, 
Jesus clearly states he has two, and you've got to keep both in mind. But even this is titled the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. We totally forget the older brother. Why is that? Uh, several different reasons. Uh, number one, Jesus begins with the prodigal. The man had two sons, but we're going to look at the younger. Uh, number two, Jesus spends a lot more ink on the younger brother. The older brother is a lot shorter. Number three, the younger brother has a better ending to his story. We like to focus on happy endings, and he has a very happy ending. The older brother does not. This story really doesn't even finish. There's really no ending to this story. So maybe we just kind of leave the older brother and the ending that kind of just um, meanders off and just no conclusion whatsoever, and we just decide, okay, there's a better conclusion to the younger brother's account. Whatever it is, we need to keep in mind that there are two sons. There are two people that Jesus is speaking about. And we've already seen them. They're at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We have two categories of people, the younger brother and the older brother. The younger brother are the tax collectors and the sinners. The older brother are the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. So we have two brothers that are typifying two groups of people, two categories of people. And Jesus opens his account by saying, there are these two categories of people all wrapped up into these two sons. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, everything about this demand that this younger brother makes would have cut against the grain of Hebrew society's core values. The original listeners, when they heard Jesus say those words, would have gasped in horror. How dare this man say those words? Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. How dare he ask for that? There's a number of reasons why, but the very first reason why is Jesus uses a word when he says, give me the share of the estate. It's a word that's only used one time in the Gospels. Um, Normally, you would think of the word inheritance. Give me my inheritance. This word means inheritance and then some. This word is take my inheritance and then take everything that you own, Dad. Take it all and divide it up evenly so that I get part of everything you own. The share of the estate is everything. It's inheritance plus. Now, when would a son receive the inheritance and the share of the goods? Receive it when the father dies. What this son is asking, his intent, in essence, is, Dad, I wish you were dead. There is shame. There is anger. There is bitterness. There is hate. There is obvious disrespect. But you need to feel the emotions that are being felt by this younger brother. We read biblical texts uh, as if we're, we're listening to Siri on our iPhone. Just a very black and white, very monotone, very almost digital technological voice. Just, and the father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, blah, blah, blah. You need to read the disdain that this son has for his father. He hates his dad. This is a very nice way of saying, dad, I wish you were dead. You are no good to me. You're only good to me because of what you have to offer me. And frankly, you're a barrier I want the things that you have to offer me, but I can only get them when you die. So I wish you were dead now because I don't love you. I love your stuff. The son is completely disregarding 
Israel's laws governing the precious nature of the inheritance. There are so many Old Testament passages. I could just uh, tell you Deuteronomy chapter 21 has a couple of them. Uh, Laws regarding when somebody could receive an inheritance, how much. Deuteronomy 21 uh, details that the first son, the eldest son, is going to receive um, twice as much. He's going to receive the blessing. Uh, He gets a double portion. That's not necessarily a bad thing for the younger. They're going to get an inheritance as well. It was more to help when uh, the, the eldest person would, would pass away, uh, when the father of the patriarch would pass away. It was just a way to ensure that the inheritance would stay in the family and continue to be passed down. An inheritance is a blessing. A man who leaves an inheritance to his children is a righteous man. This younger brother knew that his father was righteous. He knew that he was wealthy. They lived in a a good home. They have servants, as we're going to read later. They have a lot of slaves. They have a huge party. They have a lot of animals. They're a very wealthy family. And so the younger son says, Dad, I want out of this family. I hate being a part of this family. I have plans for my life, and none of them involve you. You are simply to me a hurdle that I have to get over. And I have two options here. I can either wait until you die, or I can say to your face, give it to me now. I wish you were dead. I'm out. This is a very wicked man. He's a very, very wicked man. He lacks any authentic love for his father. Fathers, what would you do if your son came to you and said that? These are devastating words. And here's the reality that they picture about our own sinful hearts. This son saw the father as a barrier to his satisfaction instead of the means, the satisfaction, the the blessing itself. He says, okay, I have in my mind satisfaction and you have no part of it. You're a barrier. You're a hindrance. That's sin. Sin is saying God needs to get out of the way so I can enjoy my life. Righteousness is, I need more of God so I can enjoy my life. This younger brother is a perfect picture of a sinfully wicked person. Freedom for this younger brother meant getting as far away from his father as possible. Another perfect picture of sin. Sin says, the the further away I get from God, the more satisfied I will be. Instead of the closer I get to him, the more intimately involved with him that I can get, the more satisfied I will be. Instead of drawing near and seeing his father as a blessing, he wants to get as far away because he sees his father as a barrier to his satisfaction, to his happiness. The original listeners would have been astounded by this man's demand and would have cursed at him, spit at him, declared this man a very, very wicked, disobedient son. So how's the father going to deal with him? Number two, the surprising response. The surprising response. This son is clearly breaking the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. He's not honoring his father. So what would a normal father, back in that context and culture, back in the Jewish culture of that day, what would a normal father do? At the bare minimum, a normal father would have slapped his son as hard as he could across the face. Now, if that seems a little harsh, 
Just read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, that says if a son dishonors his father, he is to be stoned to death. So usually, a disrespectful son, to this degree of disrespect and dishonor, usually there would be a, um, a, a, a moment of choice for the father. As he steps before his son, you either repent of that and turn from that, which this younger brother does not want to do. Or if you want to continue in that sinful lifestyle, if you want to be that disrespectful, I will consider you to me as dead. This even happens today in Jewish cultures. They will literally sing. It's a funeral lament. It's known as the Kaddish. They will, they will sing it over a son or a daughter who they know is very, very much alive, but living in total sin, total disrespect and dishonor towards their parents. They will treat them as if they are dead um, they will have a funeral and the whole town will come and, and see so that the father can vindicate himself, can show himself as uh, filled with honor. I won't take that from my son. There would be a mock funeral. You are dead to me. This is, by the way, why the father is going to say our, our, to, the, to the older brother, our, our, our brother here, that my son who was dead has been made alive. He's dead to the town. He's dead to everyone around us. They consider him as completely condemned and dead. We see this even on, uh, in Fiddler on the Roof. You remember the, the third daughter who decides to go after a, a, a pagan, a Gentile man. Um, the father won't even speak to her. She's considered dead to him. Um, disowned because of their dishonor. So the crowd would have been expecting that response. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. They would have expected. And the father hit him across the face with a severe blow and told him, you are dead to me. End of story. Everyone's happy. I don't know. Uh, We're done. Story's done. But instead, we see a surprising response. So the father, middle of verse 12, divided his wealth between them. He divided his wealth between them. The first point, the the shameful request, would have received gasps. When Jesus shared what this younger brother said, give me the the share of the estate that falls to me, people would have gasped. They would have gasped even louder when Jesus says, and the father did it. The father did it. He let the son have his things. The word wealth there, he divided his wealth this is a really specific Greek word. You know this word. This is the word bios. You get biology, things dealing with life. Literally, if we were to read this in the Greek, he divided his life between his sons. He gave of himself. He ripped apart everything that he had. He didn't just give the inheritance and I still have my thing. He divided everything. He gave of everything that he was to his son. This is clearly a surprise to the original hearers. He gives of his life because the son is so impatient. He doesn't wait for the death of his father. He wants it now. And his father says, yes, I will give it. Number three, we see the sinful ruin of the son. We see the shameful request in verse 11 and 12. We see the surprising response in verse 12. And we see the sinful ruin, number three, in verses 13 through 16. 
The son does not care about the dishonor he's bringing his father. By the way, neither do we when we sin. In our sin, if we were to step back and look at it, we'd see the shame that we're bringing upon our father. We'd see the shame that we're bringing upon the name of Jesus. And we don't really care. We don't really care. He's oblivious to his own shame. We are as well. I don't have shame. I'm fine. Sin makes us foolish, blinded. He was impatient. He wanted what he wanted now. So are we. He saw his father as a barrier to his happiness. He saw true freedom as getting as far away from his father as he could. And it didn't take long for the prodigal's full defiance to become clear. There's just a progression of defiance. Verse 13, not many days later, he's going to leave. Whether or not he's been planning where he's going to go, we don't, we don't really know that. All we know is not many days later, he's out. Days. We're talking days. This is not even a week's time. So he receives the inheritance and then all of the goods divided. He receives a lot. But he already, in his sin, is foolish because he's going to sell it all. He's going to liquidate everything that he has. So he can get money, he can get ready cash, so he can spend all of the cash that he has now away from his father. So this is foolishness. This is utter foolishness because everything is going to be marked down. I want cash, so just go ahead and buy it for whatever price. Just give me cash. He's selling all of his father's things, pennies on the dollar for what he had. He settles for so low a price because he just wants out. Get me out. This illustrates the foolishness of the sinner so well. All we want to do is get away from God. And we're so concerned about doing it now than we are about what it's going to cost us in the future. We're so concerned about just get away from God now in my sin instead of what will it cost me to walk down this road. So not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together um, that the, those words gathered everything together describes that process. The Greek language is the process of liquidating things, to gather cash, to move on. And he went on a journey into a distant country. This is Gentile land. This is not Jewish land, distant, far away. He's not in his hometown anymore. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Squandered is a beautiful Greek word. Greek the Greek language is not as picturesque or graphic as the Hebrew language is. Hebrew is very picturesque. It's built around pictures. Greek isn't as much, but this Greek word is. This Greek word for squandered is the same idea, has the same idea of, of winnowing something, throwing wheat into the air and letting the wheat fall down and the chaff be blown away by the wind. So what this son is doing is just throwing his money up in the air for whoever wants it, and it's just being blown away by the wind. He doesn't care about it anymore. He just is so happy that he's away from his father and he can do whatever he wants. He's not careful with his money. Typically, people who are chasing down pleasure don't really think very far ahead. He's not. He squanders his money. End of verse 13, with loose living. That's, by the way, in the New King James, that's where we get the word prodigal living. Prodigal just means reckless, wasteful. Prodigal does not have inside of it a connotation in the original word of rebellious or wicked it just means you are wasteful you're not careful with your things you're not careful with your money it's loose living it's excess so this younger son is throwing his money up into the wind to let it be blown away by whatever would come and he's living loosely he's living recklessly wastefully in excess now verse 14 
The word now is going to be the turn. Jesus uses this word very specifically to say, this son's getting everything he wants, but something's going to happen. And this is, of course, what happens in real life. You will ultimately come to the end of your rope, and that's exactly what happens with this man. Uh, You guys know Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, whatever you sow, you will reap, for he who sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption. Sin never delivers what it promises, and the pleasurable life that sinners think they're pursuing always turns out to be precisely the opposite, a hard road that's going to lead to destruction. Let me give you two verses. You know one of them, Romans chapter 6, 23. The wages of our sin is death. The ultimate end of our sin is death. But one that would be good for you to memorize is Proverbs thirteen fifteen. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard to live as a sinner. It's hard to live as an unrighteous man. Sure, it might look easy. That's what David says in a lot of Psalms. Like, why are they prospering? Everything's going well. But he always comes back to, but I know the end is destruction. I know their end, and it's not a good one. Here we are graciously given the end of this man before his death. We see the end of sin before the death of this younger brother. This man's situation seemed to be everything he wanted, but it's all about to change with this little word, now. Verse 14, now, when he had spent everything, he spends it all, which is probably a decent amount of money. It could have been more, but we know that his family was wealthy. It's probably a decent amount of money. If he had been patient on selling things, he could have made more. He liquidated it all very quickly. But he spent it all. And a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Now, this is another word when Jesus says a famine occurred. This is another word where I believe the original listeners would have gasped. Famines are not good. We don't experience that. We don't know what that feels like. The very first famine that we read about in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. It's what drove Abraham to Egypt. Um, there are actually some people that say, you remember God told Abraham, I'm going to provide for you in this land. You don't need to go anywhere else. Don't go anywhere else. And a lot of people would say that Abraham was sinful to go to Egypt. Um, he should have obeyed God. Even in the midst of the famine, God was going to provide. But he decided, ah, I've got to provide for myself. So he went to Egypt, and you remember picked up a slave woman in Egypt that ended up being the mother of Ishmael. If he had obeyed God and stayed in the midst of the famine and trusted, things might have been different. Genesis 26:10, there's a famine that sends Isaac to Egypt. Genesis 41, 55, uh, 54, Joseph has a dream about the famine that's going to come. There's a lot of famines that the original listeners would have remembered. And the reality is famines are usually caused by other natural disasters, which makes this famine in this story so poignant. All of the little disasters that have come in this prodigal's life bring him to a place where he is in a disastrous situation with a famine. The disaster of his disobedience of dishonoring his father, the disaster of liquidating the estate too quickly, the the disaster of reckless spending, all of these little disasters, big disasters, all amount to a famine. Famines in the Bible are caused by droughts, 1 Kings uh, 17.1, caused by insects, uh, Joel 1.14, by hailstorms, Exodus chapter 9, verses 22 through 23, enemies that come in and lay siege to the town and to the village and to the land, destroy crops, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25. 
There's one terrible famine in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 6 during the life of Elijah or Elisha that causes two women to make a very disgusting pact. I don't know if you remember it. In 2 Kings chapter 6 verses 26 through 31, these two women say, "We will make a pact that we will eat each other's child. We have no food, we're dying. We will we will kill both of our children and eat them." Um, they actually eat one but the other mother is no longer hungry after that experience that she decides I'm not going to give up my child. That kind of desperation is impossible for us to imagine. But it happens all the time in the Bible and even today around the world. Here's what one writer describes. Uh, he describes a famine that happened in Europe during the medieval era. He says this, The years of hunger were terrible, Peasants might be forced to sell all that they owned. In the hardest times, they devoured bark, roots, grass, even clay. Cannibalism was not unknown. Strangers and travelers were waylaid and killed to be eaten. And there are tales of gallows being torn down with as many as 20 bodies hanging from a single scaffold by men frantic to eat the warm flesh raw. This is the lowest of the low, and the original listeners would have known that. When Jesus said there is a famine that occurs in that country, this man is as good as dead. There's no hope for this man. This is sure death. This is horror. This is terror. And frankly, to the original listeners, they would have said, serves him right. Serves him right. He's getting exactly what he deserves, which I think is exactly Jesus' point. I think he's shared this story up to this point, and he's saying something awful is happening. And everybody's thinking, yep, and it serves him right. You do that to your dad. This is God's justice upon him. He deserves it. And yes, he does. But the father in his grace is going to step in in a mighty way. We'll get to that next week. There's a famine, and he's impoverished. He has nothing. So, verse 15 we would expect to read, so he decided, I was an idiot, I am a fool, I'm going back home because I know dad has money, I know dad has food, and maybe he'll take me back. But here is the utter foolishness of our sinful condition. When this man sees, I have no money, I have no friends, I have no home, I have no food, and there's no food around me, I'm as good as dead. His plan is, I will do anything that I can do to stay away from my father. This is what sin does. With all that lay before him, with certain death, and with home being just a ways away, but being an option, the young man decides it would be better to stay in the sinful land and his sinful state than admit that he is wrong and turn back to the father and be held accountable for his actions. I'll just do it myself. The, father, the prodigal's first plan didn't work. Take all my share, leave, and enjoy life away from my father. That didn't work. But his second plan is not, so I'm going to go back and make things right and get back to the way things were. His second plan is, I'm going to join myself to a citizen and live here as a slave. So verse 15, he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens. That word hired, some of your translations might say joined. It's literally a word in the Greek that's used elsewhere to, to refer to glue. He glued himself to a pagan foreigner. He would rather glue himself to a pagan foreigner than he would rather glue himself to his father. 
He doesn't want to be close to his father. And he's gluing himself to this pagan business owner in the exact same way that he had been glued to his father. I don't want to have a relationship with this guy. I just want his stuff. He's using people. So he's a beggar. He goes and he hires himself out to one of the citizens. And that citizen sends him into the fields to feed the swine. That would have been another gasp. We would have seen this coming because he's in a Gentile territory, but to, to be in a dirty position feeding pigs, that's an unclean animal. This younger brother was once a good Jewish boy, but now he's playing with the pigs. All of the listeners would have just said, this is just the epitome of a wicked man. And you would think, okay, that's as bad as it can get. Doesn't get much better than, or much worse than that. But it does get worse. Verse 16, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods. That's a word for a carob pod that the swine were eating. But he couldn't. That's what Luke's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. He would gladly have done that, but he couldn't because carob pods are not digestible by human stomachs. It's impossible to digest carob pods. So he's looking going, I want what the pigs are eating, but I can't even eat that. This is the lowest of the low, hanging out with the pigs. This is a very demeaning, dirty job. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that uh, television program. It's called Dirty Jobs. Um, and they, they look at all these different terrible, gross jobs that these uh, people have to do. One of them on television in our context, in our culture, is taking care of feeding pigs. Like that is a dirty job. They actually show big, massive trucks going to casinos in Las Vegas and taking all of the food and all of the trash and everything that they dump out. They put them into these big trucks and they drive out to this conveyor belt and they pour all the food on the conveyor belt. And as it goes by, people just stand there watching the conveyor belt and they want to pick out things that are inedible so that the pigs can have all of the food and and not these things that like plastic parts that uh, the pigs can't eat. And it's disgusting. In, In our century, in our technologically advanced society, that's still a disgusting job. Here, this young man is living in a disgusting place, in a disgusting state, the lowest of the low, and he can't even eat what the pigs are eating even though he wants to. If the Pharisees thought it was bad for Jesus to eat with sinners, they would have really thought it was bad for a, a good Jewish boy to eat with pigs. And as if his condition couldn't get any worse, he's begging, he's trying to eat what the pigs are eating, but he can't. The end of verse 16, Jesus just stamps this story of this younger brother with utter hopelessness. No one was giving anything to him. He's got nothing. He's begging, and people are seeing him begging, and he is so low, he's deemed untouchable. That's our introduction to the younger brother. It's a painful introduction. It it, it starts with an angry demand, a shameful demand. And it kind of, it ends when Jesus says nobody's giving him anything. You're kind of like, well, good for that. Good for those people. I mean, he deserves it. How dare he have given that request at the beginning, that demand of his father. His father was kind of dumb to do what his father did, but he is getting what was coming to him. You're kind of rooting for the famine kind of like, yes, he deserves this. But this devastating introduction to the younger brother is where we need to stop and we need to stare at the reflection of the mirror of this poor, 
ruinous life. The reality is the prodigal's experience is a vivid picture of what sin is and what sin does to us. All sin involves three things that we clearly see in this parable. Number one, all sin is irrational rebellion against a loving father. All sin is irrational rebellion against a loving father. Sin's greatest evil is not that it's necessarily doing something wrong, though that's certainly true. The real evil is that sin is an affront to a good and gracious God. This father had given this son everything. We can see even in the way that he treats the younger brother. Sure, I'll give you those. And the way that he treats the older brother, come celebrate. We see that this father is loving, good, gracious. Our sin is calculated, deliberate violation of the relationship that we have with our creator. It's cosmic treason. Number two, all sin left unchecked will continue to bear more evil fruit. It will just keep on going. We've talked about the debt snowball in financial peace. This is the sin snowball. You start small, and this son actually didn't really start that small. He started with a very disrespectful, dishonoring request. Dad, I wish you were dead. And left unchecked, his sin brought him to more evil, more and more and more evil. The older brother is going to say of the younger brother, when he's talking to his father, he devoured your wealth with prostitutes. Some people would say, well, that's just the younger brother, or that's the older brother that's judging him for things he didn't even do, just trying to make a more radical case for how bad his brother was. There's no reason to think that the younger brother wasn't involved in prostitution. He wanted to get outside of the bounds of his father's limitations, righteous standards. And when you do that, anything goes. Anything goes. He's a wicked man. As his sin is left in check, it just keeps rolling into a bigger and bigger and bigger snowball of sin. And finally, number three, all sin involves a promise of happiness that will lead to death. A promise of happiness that will lead to death. Think of what this son wanted. He wanted freedom. Get me out of this. I don't want to be in this house. I want to have my own place. He wanted freedom. Where do we find him at the end of the story here? He's a slave. He's a slave. Oh, I want freedom and he's a slave. What do you want? I want riches. Give me my father's money. I want to be wealthy. I want to have all the riches. Where do we find him at the end of this part of the story? He's a beggar. I wanted fame. I wanted notoriety. I had all these friends and I wanted to keep them. And where do we find him at the end of this section? The lowest of the low. Even the pigs aren't his friends and nobody's giving him anything to eat. That's why the truth of Proverbs thirteen fifteen is so necessary for us to, to read, to memorize, and to believe. The way of the transgressor is hard. One thing is certain. If you could have told this prodigal, if you follow through with these desires, right before he's going, as, as he's walking to ask the father, I wish you were dead, I want your stuff. If you could have cut in and said, hey, I know what's going to happen at the end. You're going to go. You're going to get what you want. Your dad's a gracious man. He's going to give it to you. You're going to go. You're going to take it. You're going to lose it all. You're going to lose all your friends. You're going to end up having to be a slave to somebody. You're going to end up feeding pigs. You can't even eat what the pigs are eating. And you're going to end up begging and nobody's going to give you anything. You're going to die. If the prodigal had known that, I don't think that he would have set out on the quest. This is where foolishness is saying, I'll be the one that gets away. I'll be the one that can do this. 
Wisdom is drawing out your sin to its logical conclusion. Believing the words of Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. Numbers 32, verse 23. Your sin, be sure that your sin will find you out. You are going to be found in ruin if you don't stop. This is a perfect picture of you and of me. The prodigal is every sinner who has ever lived. We are broken. Ephesians chapter 2, we are by nature children of wrath. Um, Every thought is evil always continually. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Such were some of you. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, but look at the list. We are wicked, unrighteous, depraved sinners. So my question to you this morning is, have you seen yourself that way? Do you see yourself that way? If you've never seen yourself as wicked and in need of the saving grace of Jesus, today is the day to stop and to reflect and to see you living on your own apart from Jesus, you just doing things your way, is the same as this younger brother saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's what sin is. In cosmic treason, we're saying, God, I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't the God of the universe. I want you off the throne. I want to be on the throne and make the rules. God, you're just a barrier to my satisfaction. You're not the one that satisfies me. And if you're here this morning and you have never seen yourself in need of a Savior, hopeless, in this condition, no one's going to give you anything. You are devastated in ruin because of where your sin has led you, then today is the day to cry out like Luke 18. We've, we've studied this. Brian preached this a couple weeks ago. Be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not looking at anybody else. I'm looking at myself and I see myself as this man chasing down my dreams, chasing down my desires, my hopes with no care of what God says about it. In the end, it will lead to death. I would just plead with you, today is the day to turn from your sin, to wake up like this younger brother is going to do, as we will see next week, and to turn to Christ, to say those words that we sung, Lord, I need you. You are my one defense, my one righteousness. I am dead because of my sin, and I need a Savior. If you're here and you know yourself to be a sinner, and you've cried out for mercy like that man in Luke 18, and you've been saved by the grace of God, what are we to do with this parable? with the beginning of this parable. I would just say two things. Be thankful and kill sin. Be thankful and kill sin. Be thankful that God saw you in your foolishness. Be thankful that you did not die in your sin before God gripped your heart. Be thankful that you didn't go any further in your sin than you went because of God's gracious hand. Be thankful and then kill sin. Kill sin with the grace of God. Kill sin by being thankful. You don't kill sin by saying, okay, now I'm going to work as hard as I can. You've given me favor. You've given me love. But now I've got it from here. You saved me, but now I'm going to do the rest. You kill sin by looking at the grace of God and saying, you love me even in the midst of that? Just like we looked at last week. You saw value. You valued me and a a relationship with me enough to die for me. That's how you kill sin, with the grace of God and the superior satisfaction that's found in Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards knew this resolution that uh, he wrote, resolution number 24. He said, Resolved, whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, 
to trace it back till I come to the original cause of it and both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all my might against the origin of it. So as you look at this list, I mean, there's so much sin involved in this younger brother. Can I just ask your own heart? Is there any sin that you're involved with that you need to say today, I'm done. I'm done. Martin Luther says, to do so no more is the truest repentance. To say, I'm done. Confess sin one to another. Open it up before the Lord. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You'll find compassion with Jesus. You'll find compassion with CBC. As you share your struggles, you share your sin, acknowledge it, trace it back to the origin, forsake it, fight against it, pray against it. But here's where I want to end. As you're doing all of this killing of sin, realize the origin of this man's sin, this younger brother. His sin, if you boil it all down, is this. Dad, I don't want you. I want what you can offer me. I don't want you. I want your things. I'm using you to get something else that I want. He isn't the end. It's your things that I care about. I believe this is a beautiful definition of sin. I want, I want God's things. I want the things that he can offer me. I just don't want him. Get him out of the picture. This is everything that God has created in a good way that Satan takes and perverts and twists and changes. So here's my question to us this morning at CBC. Is there something in your life today that you would see God as being a barrier to? And even as we say that, we go, oh, no, I don't, I don't see that. No, I'm not. Is there anything that you see God as being a barrier to? That if you had something that's beyond him or something that he can offer you, but not him himself, you'd be satisfied. The heart of this younger brother is, I don't want God. I want his things. And ultimately, that is cosmic treason. Because if we can get God off the throne and we can live our lives without him, but just enjoying his stuff, the Garden of Eden all over again. God gave rules. God gave regulations for the joy and the satisfaction of Adam and Eve. And they say, we don't want you on the throne. We want to make our rules. We just want your stuff. We have this fruit. We want it. We don't want you. So as you kill sin, the best way to do that is to pursue Christ and to fan a flame and a passion for God. That in everything you're doing, you're saying, how can this bring me closer to him, to love him more? 1 Corinthians 16 says, whoever does not have love for Jesus is to be accursed. Let us fan a flame in our hearts for love for God that will kill the sin in our lives. And let's see Jesus as the blessing himself and not a barrier to anything that we would want. God, I praise you so much for the amazing teaching of Jesus, that he is so gracious and compassionate to reveal our sin nature. He was doing this to show the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees how far they had fallen, but he is doing this to show us our own sin. And so, God, we we see ourselves with the same shame and the same wickedness and the same anger and the same bitterness that this younger brother has. God, that's us. And I pray that you would 
be gracious this morning to open our eyes to see our need for you. That we would run to you just as the younger brother is going to do when he comes to his senses and he wakes up. God, may we run to you even now. And may we see you as our ultimate good, our greatest good. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is none and nothing that I desire more than you. God, may we be able to say that this morning by the power of your spirit. And may we cling to your grace and praise you for your mercy. My